0: Welcome to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is David Naftalin and I am this year's Morris B. Abram Fellow here at UN Watch in Geneva, Switzerland. On this week's episode, UN Watch Executive Director Hillel Neuer speaks about the UN's upcoming 20th anniversary celebration of the 2001 Durban Conference on Racism. Neuer explains why Durban has become a symbol for anti-Semitism and why UN Watch is calling on countries not to attend the UN gathering this September. So far, the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, Hungary, and Israel have pulled out of the event. Neuer's talk was originally delivered before Canada's Lord Reading Law Society.
1: i like to speak about how the United Nations treats Israel with a particular focus on an event that is upcoming um, in a few months in September, uh, which is known as Durban 4. So what is Durban 4 and uh, what is that all about? And then we'll come to a bit more broadly how the UN treats Israel, including things that come directly to our difficult times. So let's go right into, into uh, Durban. Um, in September 2021, pursuant to a UN General Assembly resolution that was adopted on December 31st, uh, 2020. The UN is going to convene a one-day high-level meeting. It's going to take place at the same time as the UN General Assembly opening, whether that will be physically in person with world leaders or whether that will be virtual remains to be seen. The mark the 20th anniversary of the Durban Declaration, which of course was adopted at the UN's notorious 2001 World Conference Against Racism that was held in Durban, South Africa. I'm just going to give you a brief summary of what happened in 2001 and why we're concerned about what's uh, up ahead in September. So uh, in 2001, it was one week before the September 11th terrorist attacks, the UN hosted this world conference on racism, discrimination, xenophobia, and intolerance in Durban, South Africa. Durban, South Africa at the time was the post-apartheid South Africa. What better place in the world to host a um, conference on on, uh, racism? That was the thinking. Uh, of course, uh, sadly, it didn't turn out that way. Instead of combating racism, the event, um, actually, the conference, actually, incited it. Durban became uh, the worst international manifestation of anti-Semitism in the post-war period. Uh, let me just tell you a few bullet points about the um, about what was happening at the conference and the pre-conference, because there was there were events that happened before it in preparation of the declaration, as the UN has. Um, preparatory conferences. The Asian nations met in Tehran in February 2001. That outcome text from Tehran demonized Israel. It accused Israel of quote, committing a new kind of apartheid, a crime against humanity, and a form of genocide. So this is what came out of the Asian meeting ahead of the Durban Declaration. This proposed language at the last minute was excised from the Durban Declaration in South Africa under pressure from members of the European Union, who had threatened to follow the US and Israel, which had pulled out of the conference. Nevertheless, so while this uh, awful language was removed, nevertheless, the final text did single out Israel. It did target Israel as an alleged perpetrator of racism in in the form of singling out, quote, the plight of Palestinians under foreign occupation. So there wasn't anything about the plight of the Uyghurs under Chinese oppression, which maybe the world should have known about uh, 20 years ago. Uh, nor was there anything about the plight of any other people around the world. It was only the plight of Palestinians. So Israel was singled out in that fashion, in the final text. In addition, inflammatory speeches at the conference in Durban were ubiquitous. PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat told delegates of the, quote, ugliness of, quote, Israeli racist policies and practices against the Palestinian people. Cuban dictator Fidel Castro spoke of, quote, the dreadful genocide perpetrated at this very moment against our Palestinian brothers. So that was at the main conference. Then of course, we had the parallel event, which is the NGO forum. Um, at that event, you know, many UN conferences have a side event where NGOs can hold their own event and NGOs are very influential. These are human rights, non-governmental organizations. They're seen as non-political and things that they say are treated very seriously. Uh, sadly, that NGO forum was hijacked um, and the non-government, non-governmental organizations formally, officially declared Israel a, quote, racist apartheid state that was guilty of, quote, genocide. So that was at the NGO forum. You had the governmental conference, which I, t- I told about what was in the declaration and the speeches. Then you had the NGO forum at the side. Then you had marches in the streets. Thousands of participants were marching in a Palestinian led march. And one of the placards read, quote, Hitler should have finished the job. Nearby, some were selling the most notorious of anti-Jewish tracts, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Uh, At the NGO forum, the Arab Lawyers Union, which is sponsored by Syria, distributed caricatures of Jews with hooked noses, fangs dripping with blood, clutching money. Jewish human rights activists at Durban were physically intimidated and threatened with mobs screaming at them, you don't belong to the human race. So this is what human rights activists experienced uh, at Durban. Uh, Jewish students, for example, from the European Union of Jewish students who went there to promote human rights and fight racism. That's why they came to the conference. They left Durban traumatized. So um, that was in a nutshell Durban one. And it's why to this day, uh, it is seen as the worst public display of anti-Semitism at the global level, um, you know, since the Nazi period. And uh, And there's a reason why it's become taboo for people who truly care about anti-racism. And so now uh, up ahead, well let me say a word, just a word about Durban 2. Eight years later in April 2009, the UN uh, organized what was called the Durban Review Conference which became known as Durban 2. Um, that was in April 2009, it was across the street from my office here in Geneva. And uh, before, it, before it began, uh, 10 countries pulled out, uh, Canada was the first, Israel, Italy, the US, Germany, the Netherlands, Czech Republic, Poland, Australia, and New Zealand. So because of all the terrible things that I described that happened in Durban 1, these countries, some of them at the last minute, decided to pull out. Um, Now, who who was running the conference? I was there when they selected two years prior in 2007, the chair of the planning committee was Mrs. Najat al-Hajaji. She was a relative of Colonel Gaddafi, his representative here in Geneva. They named her uh, the representative of the Libyan dictatorship to be the head of the planning committee. They, I remember they read out her CV. They said, well, she was chair of the Human Rights Commission. So, you know, a few years ago she was chair of the Human Rights Commission. So she has a great, um, great credentials. And indeed in 2003, uh, the Libyan representative of Gaddafi was the chair of the Human Rights Commission. So she was then head of the planning committee from 2007 to 2009. I was there when she got the position and Louise Arbour uh, former Canadian Supreme Court Justice, and then the High Commissioner for Human Rights gave her a kiss on the cheek and you know brought her up to the dais. And so that was Gaddafi's representative chairing the planning committee. When the final event took place on Monday, April 20th, 2009, Iranian President Ahmadinejad, at the time probably the world's most famous Holocaust denier, he was the opening speaker and he said, quote, world Zionism personifies racism, It falsely resorts to religion, abuses religious sentiments to hide its hatred and ugly face. After World War II, said Ahmadinejad, a totally racist government and occupied Palestine was established under the pretext of Jewish suffering. Diplomats from the remaining EU countries in the conference stood up and walked out in a very powerful protest. Um, So that was Durban II. Uh, I'll just say a word that at the time, because it was held here across street from our office, we decided to organize the response, um, the, the, the counter uh, events, and um, they were actually tremendous events. Uh, we had one day where we held a real human rights conference and invited victims from around the world who were ignored at the Durban conference, including by the way, victims of Gaddafi's torture, um, who actually testified at the conference itself. The Libyan late chair was trying to shut them down it was a Palestinian who was tortured by the Qaddafi regime. And uh, that was quite a moment. If you want, you can go on YouTube and type in UN Libyan Surprise, and you can watch the video of the Qaddafi victim testifying at the Durban conference uh, the day before it began. So we, we held a real human rights conference attended by hundreds of people. We organized, uh, when, when, when Ahmadinejad spoke, it happened to be Yom HaShoah on that day. So we organized a Yom HaShoah commemoration. We had Elie Wiesel of blessed memory, who was brilliant, um, as other brilliant speakers, we had Professor Kotler, we had uh, Bernard Henri Levy, and we had Father Patrick Debois, a Catholic priest who uh, has devoted his life to uncovering mass graves of Jews who were killed by the Einsatzgruppen by the Nazis and who never received a proper burial. So, uh, um, and so we had a magnificent event with thousands of people uh, lit candles, and um, that was right after Ahmadinejad said what he said. Um, so that was uh, a memorable. Very memorable event. And we also had an event to celebrate the existence of Israel, which was um, its, its right to exist was denied in Durban One, and people were, were scared of identifying with Israel. And we had an event where you could openly identify and support um, uh, Israel's rights. And uh, actually, there were tremendous events. Nathan Sharansky was there, uh, and many other people. And so, actually, when the students who were traumatized from Durban 1 came to our events in Durban 2, they actually left Inspire. So that was that was the, the positive event of, of, uh, of outcome of our events, but the Durban 2 itself reaffirmed the Durban declaration. That was at, in 2009. Um, two years later was the 10th anniversary of the Durban conference, and the UN again held an event which became known as Durban 3, also at the UN General Assembly, and there um, uh, to reaffirm the original Durban declaration, and there 15 countries refused to attend Australia, Austria, Bulgaria, Canada, Czech Republic, France, Germany, Israel, Italy, Latvia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Poland, the UK, and the United States. So you had 15 countries who refused to attend Durban 3. We hope, upcoming in September, that at least the same countries will announce that they will not go to Durban IV, that they will not reaffirm the Durban Declaration and go to this event. Uh, who has announced already? The US has announced, and I'm gonna quote what the US said, they're not gonna go. The US will not attend or participate in any events commemorating the 20th anniversary of the Durban Declaration. Um, or the World Conference of Racism, which preceded it. The United States stands with Israel and has always shared its concerns over the Durban process's anti-Israel sentiment used as a forum for anti-Semitism and freedom of expression issues. Canada announced it would not attend and Canada said, quote, is concerned that the Durban process has and continues to be used to push for anti-Israel sentiment and as a forum for anti-Semitism. That is why we do not plan to attend or participate in events surrounding the 20th anniversary of the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. So I, I commend the Canadian government, Prime Minister Trudeau's government for taking that stand and Anthony Housefather announced it and, uh, and that's terrific. Uh, Australia also announced that they will not attend. Uh, Israel will not attend. And again, we hope more countries uh, will not attend. So countries like uh, the UK, France, Germany, Netherlands, Czech Republic, Slovenia, we hope these countries um, will announce that they will not attend and we hope that others as well. So that in a nutshell is, is Durban uh, and Durban Four. What about the rest of the UN? How is Israel treated at the rest of the UN beyond the Durban conferences? And um, you know, uh, let me just say a word about the UN General Assembly, which is the parliament of the UN. You know, that's the body that voted to create in 1947, 29th of November, a Jewish state and an Arab state. So the UN General Assembly uh, endorsed the idea of a Jewish state and, and in some ways gave it its founding mandate. But uh, over time the UN General Assembly changed, became hijacked by many dictatorships, abused by the Soviet Union, uh, anti-Western alliance, and, uh, and by 1975 you had an alliance of um, Soviet Union, uh, Arab regimes who began to use the UN to demonize Israel, and of course in 1975 they adopted the infamous declaration declaring Zionism to be a form of racism. Zionism is racism. So countries that had joined the UN in the 1960s for decolonization, had joined under the banner of national self-liberation, uh, many of them actually voted, along with Soviet Union and its, and its uh, communist uh, allies, to uh, declare that Zionism, which is the Jewish movement for national self-determination and self-liberation, singled out as a form of racism. Uh, it was a perverse and obscene act. Uh, President Chaim Herzog at the time he was Israel's ambassador to the UN at the time. He famously tore the resolution in two and delivered a brilliant speech as did Patrick Moynihan. I recommend if people are interested, read both of those speeches or inspiring uh, speeches um, from November, 1975. So thankfully that resolution, Zionism is Racism was repealed, but the spirit of Zionism as Racism sadly lives on, it lives on at the Durban Declaration um, uh, and the Durban process, but also at other events. And I don't have time to go through them, I'll just mention that the World Health Organization uh, just voted to single out Israel as the only country in the world that was condemned for violating health rights of the Palestinians and of Druze uh, on the Golan Heights, right? So no resolution condemning China for its role in the leak of the the, uh, coronavirus from the lab, which increasingly seems to be most likely. Um, or certainly the way that they silenced people and arrested people and muzzled people who tried to speak out and warn about the coronavirus, uh, like the doctor um, in in Wuhan, who was muzzled and then died from the coronavirus. So China is not mentioned, you know, Syria, which bombs hospitals is not mentioned, but only Israel was condemned for violating health rights at the World Health Assembly. Um, So, uh, you know, we could go through various UN bodies. I mentioned the UN General Assembly. Let me just talk about one body as a nutshell, which is the Human Rights Council. It's fitting to talk about it now because we're marking the 75th anniversary of the Human Rights Commission, which was the original body founded by Eleanor Roosevelt, the founding chair. René Cassin, the great French legal philosopher was the vice chair. And it was founded with the noblest of principles in, in two years later, in 1948, they adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was a terrific document. Um, but sadly over time, it became hijacked such that by 2003, as I mentioned before, Colonel Qaddafi's representative became the chair. So the, uh, in, in 1946, Eleanor Roosevelt at uh, 2003 as the chair, in 2003, Colonel Muammar Qaddafi, chair of the Human Rights Commission. Uh, many of its members were human rights violators, not all, but many of them. Um, and Kofi Annan decided two years later in 2005, we need to reform this body. Let's create a new and improved human rights council which was done in 2006. They scrapped the Human Rights Commission and they created a new and improved Human Rights Council. 15 years later, where do we stand? Well, if you look at the membership, sadly, it is, I would say, worse than ever. The members of the Human Rights Council today include, just elected this year, China, Cuba, Russia, some of the worst violators of human rights. They joined countries like Venezuela, Pakistan, Libya, again, which it's not Gaddafi, but they torture migrants. African migrant workers are tortured there, enslaved. Eritrea also has slave labor. They are a member of Somalia, failed state with female genital mutilation. Pervasive is a member of the Human Rights Council. And I can go on. 60% are either uh, full-on dictatorships or um, human rights abusers. Um, That's the Human Rights Council. Sadly, very little has changed. Yes, they do take some action from time to time. When the US was a member, It led some action on a number of states, but the vast majority of the worst abusers are ignored. There never was a single resolution, special session, urgent session or commission of inquiry on China's uh, subjugation of the Uyghurs, million of them Uyghur Muslims thrown into uh, camps, herded into camps, never been a single action at the Human Rights Council. Russia invaded uh, Crimea, Um, sometimes mentioned, but Russia's uh, uh, torture of Alexei Navalny the dissident and poisoning of dissidents, never mentioned at all. Russia's human rights situation, never once been mentioned. You'd think there'd be an emergency situation when Navalny was facing possible death, um, when he was on a hunger strike, no mention of Russia's human rights abuses at all. Cuba arrests artists, throws them into prison. Pakistan, where a mother, a Christian mother of five was thrown onto death row, sentenced to uh, uh, stoning to death for blasphemy. In the end, she was liberated and actually fled to Canada after about nine years of being on death row. Uh, These things happen all the time in Pakistan, never been a single resolution or action on Pakistan uh, or on Saudi Arabia, which has, um, uh, uh, looking in my office, because I have a picture of him, Raif Badawi, uh, professor Kotler as his lawyer. Uh, He's a courageous Saudi dissident. All he asked for was to have a free society in Saudi Arabia. He's been in prison serving a 10 year sentence, most of which has has been filled, really uh, a travesty. And there's never been anything on Saudi Arabia, what they do to women or to human rights uh, activists. So the vast majority of the world's worst abusers are ignored at the Human Rights Council. Many of them, as I said, are elected to the Human Rights Council. It's not an accident. They wanna be on the council because they want the false badge of international legitimacy. Sadly, most of our governments um, fail to speak out in opposition to their election. We urged Canada to speak out in opposition to the election of China, Cuba, and Russia. They did not say a word. Uh, I hope they voted the right way, but they didn't say anything publicly. That's unfortunate. So if they're ignoring most of the world's worst abusers, what do they do with their time? A large proportion of their time is devoted to singling out Israel. I'll mention just a few examples. There's uh, one agenda item for the whole world. So when they begin each session, there's an agenda. Agenda item four is for human rights situations worldwide. One day on the whole world. And then one day on Israel alone. Israel... um, gets subjected, it's called human rights violations in the occupied Arab territories, including Palestine, it gets one day uh, as well for its own agenda item. Only Israel gets its own agenda item. Uh, then you have the resolutions. I just counted, you can go on our website, we have a special website called unwatch.org database. If you ever want key facts, go to our new website, unwatch.org database, and you will get the following statistics. Uh, the Human Rights Council, since its creation in the past 15 years, since 2006, It has adopted a total of 11 resolutions on Iran, 14 on North Korea, 36 on Syria, and 94 on Israel. Okay, 11 on Iran, 14 on North Korea, 36 on Syria, 94 on Israel. On China, zero. Russia, zero. Cuba, zero. Pakistan, zero. Zimbabwe, zero. Could go along the list. 94 on Israel. No other country comes close. Um, uh, Israel is basically about half the resolutions uh, on Israel as on the rest of the world combined. So this is truly the demonization of the Jewish state happening at the world's highest human rights body. So these resolutions do matter. They subvert the principles of human rights when they reward terrorist groups like Hamas. Hamas will be rewarded for their actions, which is to fire on Israeli civilians, which is a war crime from civilian areas deliberately, another war crimes using human shields. And um, and they do it deliberately so that Israel will fire back, will have casualties so that they can show the world, look, we have dead children and therefore, we, um, therefore uh, Israel is guilty of war crimes. And then uh, they seek to get Israel uh, delegitimized in international bodies, including at the Human Rights Council, the United Nations and at the International Criminal Court. Much of what is taking place in these commissions of inquiry is to fuel the investigation that recently began uh, against Israel in the International Criminal Court. So I mentioned agenda item resolutions. I'll just mention two other examples of what the Human Rights Council does regarding Israel. There's a special rapporteur, he's actually Canadian. His name is Michael Link. He teaches labor law at the University of Western Ontario. He's a lifelong partisan, very strong uh, activist against Israel in different organizations. And um, he was named special rapporteur. The Canadian government, to its credit, I think it was Foreign Minister Dion at the time, uh, opposed his nomination, but he was appointed nevertheless because of his bias and his mandate is only to look at, quote, Israel's violations of international uh, law. So his title is Special Rapporteur of Human Rights in Palestine, which sounds okay. Human rights in a given area, whether Israel committed a violation, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Authority, let everyone be examined. But no, his mandate is only to look at, quote, to investigate Israel's violations of the bases and principles of international law. That mandate was given to him since February 1993 and has been unchanged in those decades. So it is an entirely one-sided mandate, and, uh, and Michael Link says, I'm not allowed to talk about what Hamas does because it's not in my mandate. He has said this repeatedly, though in a recent report to the General Assembly, he proved that he could do if he wants to, and he began, after our criticism, has begun to mention slightly some Hamas violations, but it's just sort of a word or two, and, um, and it's kind of a, a token mention to avoid criticism, but he, uh, other than that, I would say 99.99% of his work is targeting Israel in a very biased way. Finally, one other example of how the Human Rights Council treats Israel are special sessions. As I mentioned, there have been zero on Iran, China, Russia, Cuba. Iran slaughtered 1,500 protesters in November a couple of years ago. No emergency session. China herded a million Muslims into camps. No emergency session. Uh, But Israel responds to 4,000 rockets fired by Hamas, and there's a special session So that in a nutshell is how the world's highest human rights body is treating Israel. Um, You know, I wanna stop here because I wanna leave time for questions just to say that um, we believe in the United Nations. My organization, UN Watch, uh, and the people on this call believe in the principles of the United Nations. We believe in principles of peace. These are the founding principles of the UN charter, principles of of upholding peace and security, the principles of human rights and the principles of anti-racism. And I think it is uh, tragic that because of the actions of dictatorships and their apologists, those of us who support the United Nations have been turned into, you know, be, to be portrayed as its enemies. And, and we are not. We want to defend the United Nations. We want to uphold its founding principles and save it from those who are abusing it. And the same goes for anti racism, began with Durban Conference. And, uh, you know, today, in the past, you know, since the Durban Conference, it's uh, typically Jewish groups who are urging governments not to attend because Durban became this uh, focal point for hatred of Jews on the world stage. And in doing so, Jews have been made into kind of the enemies of anti-racism. That is the tragic result of of what happens at the UN is that Jews are perceived, you know, there are some African countries who don't remember what happened um, and who think that Jews are the enemies of anti-racism. And it's really tragic. The founder of my organization UN Watch was Morris Abram. He was a great civil rights leader. He marched arm in arm with Martin Luther King, was one of the great non-black civil rights leaders of the 1950s and 60s, really from the beginning. Um, and he, he was a UN expert. In 1964, he drafted the UN Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination was drafted by Morris Abram. So uh, j- just to say that, you know, Jews were at the forefront of fighting against, um, of the anti-racism cause. And it's tragic that today, um, because of what's happening at the UN, uh, we are portrayed as enemies of anti-racism and we won't let that happen. We're going to continue to speak out for human rights, going to continue to speak out for anti-racism, and going to continue to speak out for the equal rights under the UN Charter, for Israel to be treated equally, um, and for Jews to be treated equally. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Hello. Uh, greatly appreciate all your words. It's just uh, unfortunate that they are so necessary. We'll open it right away to uh, questions, and we have many. Uh, The first one is, it's a two-part question. If you have any expectations for the outcome of the Durban 4 conference, and a follow-up to that is, by all the countries that you mentioned, Canada, U.S., not attending the uh, conference, does that do more harm than by confronting it head-on?
1: Uh, I I anticipate that the event will, it says they're going to adopt a political declaration calling for the full and effective implementation of the German declaration. So I'm sure that's what they're going to do. I doubt that they will mention in their declaration Israel, but it's by reference that anything that that reaffirms the 2001 declaration incorporates by reference the things that happened there that were said there. Um, I don't think that Israel will otherwise be singled out in that document, I hope not. Um, but I, I'm quite sure that it will be adopted. And in terms of not attending, that is a dilemma. Uh, those of us who are watchdogs of the UN, uh, there's a constant dilemma. You know, do, you, do you attend and make it better and participate? Or do you, are you concerned that your participation will legitimize the event? And there's no one one, uh, you know, one size fits all answer. Each thing has to be looked at in its own, um, in its own uh, case. And uh, in our opinion, given the history of the Durban Declaration, the the reaffirmation cannot be uh, cannot be uh, prevented. Uh, so I don't think participation will make a difference. And I think that the in the past, the non-participation by democracies has been a very powerful statement. So I think in this case, it is merited. I wouldn't necessarily endorse non-participation in every UN event. For example, the Human Rights Council, we're not against countries joining the Human Rights Council, provided they say and do the right thing, which doesn't always happen.
2: Okay, we have one that says, how has the UN changed or the alliances within the UN changed, if at all, following the Abraham Accords?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I, I used to say nothing changed and don't expect anything because uh, well, the Abraham Accords, let's recall for, for people. those are you know normalization agreements, uh, peace agreements with Bahrain, between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE, and accords with Morocco, and Sudan, quite significant. I mean, um, uh, th- each one is, is very significant. And I won't get into the details of each one, but just take Sudan, for example. This is the place in 1967 where they adopted, after the Six Day War, the, the Arab League adopted the three no's, uh, no peace, no recognition of Israel um, and no negotiations. So it, it, in the very place of the three no's to recognition of Israel, the fact that they scrapped their boycott law and ma- made some kind of normalization agreement with Israel is is uh, Magnificent. So uh, do we see any changes? Uh, The short answer is no. And the short answer is we shouldn't expect to see changes in voting because most countries vote against Israel. So uh, meaning even countries like China which uh, have good bilateral relations with Israel or you could take a country like Singapore which has superb bilateral relations with Israel. The vast majority of UN General Assembly uh, member states vote against Israel, that's sort of the norm. So it would be a bit much to expect the Emirates now that they've signed on some kind of peace with Israel, that they would do more than countries that have been excellent friends with Israel for many years. So I I wouldn't expect to see many changes. Having said that, uh, a couple of things. One is, um, I think in in the tone of the speeches from some of those countries, you might see see a slight improvement. Um, And one thing which I didn't expect was uh, in March, there was a resolution against Israel and Bahrain actually uh, was absent So you could say that they were absent for some reason, but it's clear that they were absent deliberately. So that's my caveat, is that Bahrain chose not to condemn Israel, even as Germany, France, and other European countries did vote on a resolution against Israel. Bahrain, the Arab state of Bahrain was absent. I think it was deliberate. And so that is one change that happened. I don't know if you'll, I don't think we're likely to see that often, but that did happen. So we may see some slight changes in votes. I hope at least in tone, um, and certainly behind closed doors, you'll have some more cooperation with those countries. Uh, you know, I, I hope that the, the recent war doesn't poison things. Currently, those countries have not made any changes to their relations with Israel, and I hope that they will remain because uh, I support, UN Watch supports Arab-Israeli uh, peace and coexistence, and the, the, um, uh, I was recently in, in, in Israel, and I actually met with an Emirati diplomat um, and I think it's amazing. And, I, and I, I saw it as a sign, we all saw it as a sign of Arabs and Jews coming together along with, again, before this war of, uh, within Israel, that Arab political parties seem to be uh, participating in ways that they had never done before. And then you have the war with Hamas and then also these terrible you know, lynchings and, and mob attacks, Arabs against Jews, Jews against Arabs, which are really terrible. And, and I hope that that will be um, reversed and that the, the integration that we saw will win the day, so.
2: Okay, we have another one here from Sahara Nankan. I hope I pronounced the name right. As a youngish South African human rights academic, how do we begin to dismantle the apartheid lie that seems to have spread across campuses and as lecturers when human rights education itself has arguably also become hijacked by a one-sided view that at its core denies all open dialogue and debate?
1: Well, you have to go to the facts and, of course, many of these things can't be done on one leg. Uh, I gave a speech a couple years ago that tried to do a little bit on one foot, uh, you know, talked about the fact that Israel has two million Arabs for an apartheid state. Uh, they, They have, you know, full civil rights, they vote, they're elected, they may be the ones in the past few weeks, they were the ones who possibly were going to decide who would be the government. Of course, there are problems, there's discrimination against Arabs in Israel, we saw problems in the past two weeks but they have civil rights, they do serve as doctors and lawyers and judges, and it's nothing like South Africa. And, um, you know, you, and if you look at Israel's neighbors, these are countries that were full of Jews, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Algeria, and I gave a speech, where are your Jews? These countries have zero Jews. So if we wanna talk about apartheid states, those who really care about this, ought to talk about you know, you know, Algeria, where are your Jews? That's, that's what they, we ought to be talking about. Now, if you talk about the Palestinian territories, it's of course a very complex thing because um, you have different regimes. You know, it's like in Canada, you have uh, you have um, you have an Indian Act where, and under, under law, Indians have different rules. And you could say that's apartheid. Uh, um, and in in the uh, I'm not comparing the two cases, but just each country has their history. In, in America, you have affirmative action. You know, blacks and whites are treated differently under American law by affirmative action. In Israel, you have a treaty, the Oslo treaty, which says that. Palestinians are subject to the PA jurisdiction. Israelis who live in the settlements are subject to Israeli jurisdiction. So these are by you know bilateral international treaties. And then you can have someone come in there with simplistic things, say, oh, well, they're treated differently. It's apartheid. And um, so I, I think that in order to answer the lie when it comes certainly to the Palestinian territories, you need some you need one needs to be expert in the history. Um, and uh, unfortunately, these are often um, things are uh, simplified. And, and are uh, twisted to demonize Israel. And it doesn't mean there aren't problems in the territories, it doesn't mean there aren't problems in Israel, but Israel is not an apartheid state. And again, the differences that exist in the territories are largely because of the particular history of, uh, of the conflict and of you know, Israel and the Palestinian Authority. But, um, so I, I think it's, it's complex. Um, I, there, there are some things that have been written. There are South Africans who've written Benjamin Pogrund, who was a South African social justice activist, written articles on how Israel is not an apartheid state. Judge Richard Goldstone, whom we strongly criticized for the report that he authored in 2009, which he retracted a year and a half later, but he wrote an important op-ed in the New York Times as a former South African judge saying why Israel is not an apartheid state. I think that op-ed is an important uh, article and I hope other people write about it because uh, it, you know, it's not an apartheid state and you just need intelligent people to uh, clarify why, why that's the case.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Uncharted, brought to you by UN Watch. We'll see you next time.